Seth Godin is the author of 18 international bestsellers that have been translated into over 35 languages and have really changed the way people think about marketing. Hey, it's Dustin. And you're listening to The Burleson Box. For a long time, Unleashing the Idea Virus was the most popular ebook ever published. And Purple Cow, a book you've probably read, is the best selling marketing book of the decade. The set's book Tribes was a nationwide bestseller, appearing on Amazon, New York Times, Business Week, and Wall Street Journal bestseller list. It's about the most powerful form of marketing leadership, and how anyone can now become a leader, creating movements that matter. This book, Lynchpin, came out in 2008 and was the fastest selling book of his career. Lynchpin challenges you to stand up, do work that matters, and race to the top instead of the bottom, something we teach here at Burleson Seminars. More than that, though, the book outlines a massive change in our economy, a fundamental shift in what it means to have a job. Since Lynchpin, Godin has published two more books, Poke the Box and We Are All Weird, through his Domino Project. He followed these with The Icarus Deception, a great book uh, that he launched via Kickstarter, which reached its goal in less than three hours. Joined by What You Gonna Do With That Duck and Vias for Vulnerable, those books are now widely available. In late 2014, he announced his latest book, What to Do When It's Your Turn, sold directly from his website. In addition to his writing and speaking, Seth was the founder and CEO of Squidoo. His blog, you can find it by typing Seth into Google, is the most popular marketing blog in the world. Before his work as a writer and blogger, you probably know Godin was the vice president of direct marketing at Yahoo, a job he got after selling them his pioneering 1990s online startup, Yo-Yo Dime. You can find every single possible detail that anyone could ever want to know, and you can join his podcast at sethgodin.com. last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement. Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StaxPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stax. Once again, that's StaxPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for being here. It's Dustin Burleson. Hey, Seth Godin, unless you've been sleeping under a rock, uh, really is the world's most famous marketer. Uh, he coined and invented uh, permission-based marketing uh, back in the 90s. And if you're a direct marketer, unless you've been sleeping under a rock, you probably know who Seth is. Um, but uh, we're honored to have him here on the program. His next book comes out next month. And if you're a Platinum Coaching member, you'll receive a free copy of that book in this month's packet. 
Seth, I'm a huge fan of your work. I'm a huge fan of not only what you've done for business leaders and for marketers, but really for society at large. Um, it's a splendid honor to speak with you today and to share your thoughts and ideas with our listeners. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's a privilege. Thank you for spending the time, for leading, and for showing up, and for having me. Thanks. Uh, talk about, you know, in the 90s when when you built a great company called Yo-Yo Dine that you, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, uh, sold to Yahoo. Uh, I remember reading the, the initial kind of concept back in the 90s of internet marketing. And back then they were saying, we don't even know the value of online advertising, which <laughs> fast forward to today uh, is amazing that a mere, you know, 20, 21 years ago, we were thinking that way. Um, talk about this concept of permission marketing. Uh, it was groundbreaking then. And really, it's fundamental today for anyone who wants to share their story and their ideas with the world. You know, if you think back to the early days of internet advertising with banner ads flashing without any targeting, um, and now fast forward to what you've built. And people really take for granted this idea of permission marketing. Talk about why so many companies and advertisers get that wrong. Well, the quick preview is that throughout the 80s, I was spending a lot of money that belonged to the software company where I was an employee at the age of 22 or 23, interrupting people with ads. You know, People Magazine sales reps came to see me. They wanted to take me to the US Open. It was the full out mad men sort of situation. And when the internet came along, I realized an imbalance was about to occur, which is that in direct marketing, you have to buy stamps. And stamps provide friction, and friction is a, a thing to keep it from spiraling out of control. But spam, spam is free. And what I saw would happen is that as soon as selfish marketers could steal an unlimited amount of attention, they would. And that would lead to a complete collapse in the attention economy. We talk a lot with our members, you know, an interesting uh, kind of split test between most doctors who think that all this is unnecessary and that marketing is evil and that, and that we uh -huh. shouldn't have to have to do any of it. Uh, and then our members who realize if they have a story we're sharing, you know, it takes real investment. And that's where the rubber meets the road. As you mentioned, you know, the perceived low barrier to entry of email and spam and just blasting a message uh, indiscriminately at anyone and everyone really goes out the window when you have to put stamps on letters and put them in the mail. So, you know, you go back to David Ogilvy, you know, he was he was the guy who said, listen, you know, and he came from that madman age. And he said, you know, the direct marketers are the only ones that really know what they're doing because they can measure their results. Uh, talk about how, you know, what was that like trying to convince large companies like Yahoo and large companies like People Magazine to try and hold their marketing accountable? Well, I mean, we could talk about that all day. I think that the key thing is this. Uh, anticipated, personal, and relevant messages always do better than spam. And what happened was uh, I was showing up with a, an alternative we had a 75% open rate to the emails that we sent. And we had a the ability to get 35% response rates, which was unheard of then. It's even more unheard of now. And what we pioneered was the idea that if people want to hear from you, you will do better than if they don't. You know, so anticipated personal and relevant messages that people want to get 
always work better. But here's the problem, and it's still happening to this day, that small business people say, wait a minute, I have email addresses. I need some more business. I'll just hit send. Or they say, it doesn't cost me anything to post on Facebook, so I'll just post more. And what happens is, because we're yelling into a vacuum, yelling into the ether, we get more and more selfish in the way we approach people, forgetting that everybody online has an unlimited number of choices, which means that if people don't want to hear from you, you're invisible. And you don't have to like that, but you have to accept that it's true. And in, in every you know aspect of society, I saw an interview with Seinfeld and this concept that Facebook is saying, you know, keep your videos to 15 seconds or under, right? Which I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I could listen to your podcast for days, <laughs> right? Seinfeld's point was, yeah, I mean, people have a short attention span if the content isn't good, but if they like what you're producing, the attention span, in his words, he says, is really unlimited. And so, you know, talk about what you've seen going back to what you mentioned. And I just, my eyes were just like, wow, those were the days when emails got opened at, you know, even at 50% back then, 75% was crushing it. 75% today is almost unheard of unless you've got an audience like we have here that's paying to be here and who has a, a, a high affinity and passion for the content we produce because it's so specific to orthodontists and to cosmetic dentists what, what, and to what, 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 But you, you're yeah. dismissing something that you shouldn't be dismissing, right? And that's the key to what's in my new book, and it's in the key, the key to everything that's going forward is marketers who are coming from the old model of average stuff for average people that they believe they have a right to spam the world about are saying, how do I make this medium work for me? But this medium is the first medium ever that wasn't invented to make marketers happy. We invented television because there was no place to run TV ads, and they needed a place to put TV ads, so they invented TV. But that's not why they invented the internet. And therefore, all the exceptions, you know, my blog has a huge open rate. Your uh, community where people are paying, everyone would miss you if you didn't show up. And if you didn't show up three times in a row, they'd ask for a refund. They're paying with their money and their attention. And my point is, if you can't build something like that with your practice, with your work, with something that you do, it is naive and ultimately self-defeating to believe that you will get people's attention. You won't. So stop acting like you deserve it. That's a great point. Uh, and anyone who's read your books, who listens to your podcast, which I, I cannot recommend highly enough, you've got to go listen to Akimbo, uh, what Seth's doing there. It was really an amazing gift to the world. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I, it's it's my favorite podcast. Well, thank you. Um, you create amazing content. And I think if you dig a little bit beneath the surface, there's a lot that goes into it, obviously. But the intention with which you create things and share your content, there's nothing in your content, not in your books, not in your, your programs you teach, not in the podcast, that hasn't had a high level of intention. Talk about, you know, how you stay on track and maintain that. Cause it's, it is so easy and so tempting to just send anything and everything out to the world. Cause you find it important at that time. What's that like for you to balance that in your day-to-day -day routine to really stay focused in a world where 
there's an unlimited potential vacuum to shout into. How do you stay focused? Here's a, a trick that we've been teaching in the marketing seminar that seems to really resonate with people. For a day, try substituting the word, get rid of the word prospect or customer or patient, and instead use the word student. If you had students, voluntary students, because there's no such thing as mandatory education, if they were voluntarily enrolled in going where you were going, how would you teach them? What would the lessons be? What would you cover? If you can treat the people you seek to serve and change as students, then the level of intention you bring is transformed. Because if you're a great history teacher and you know you only have 100 classes, you know each class is only going to give you 30 solid minutes. That means you only have 50 hours to teach the history of the world. You're not going to waste time talking about your dry cleaner unless talking about your dry cleaner is helpful. And so I, you know, about five years ago, I shifted my blog to one a day. Some day, some years I was doing three a day, but I only do one a day. And by doing one a day, I've said to myself, what's the best thing I could say today? And that means I have a surplus of choices. I have more than one blog post I could post today. I never say, oh, what am I going to post? I say, of all the things I could post, what's the best that's going to move this forward? And that ability to act like a teacher because people have enrolled to be students is transformative. So if you're, if you're in the business of cosmetic dentistry, for example, there is a brief moment in time when somebody cares more about what you do than anything else in the whole world. During that brief moment of time, what are you going to teach them? How can you get them enrolled in the next part of the cycle? And in our day-to-day craftsmanship, sometimes we forget that that posture of being a teacher is at the heart of what it is to be a professional. That's brilliant. And it, you see so many in our world, small practitioners or even medium-sized group practices behaving the exact opposite of that. So, I mean, right now, if you went and, you know, just exposed yourself to the vacuum of uh, elective healthcare advertising and marketing, <laughs> you'd hear a lot of people shouting, you know, $500 off Invisalign, right. you know, shouting into a vacuum where this concept of yours, which is really, really smart of teaching and and substituting the word student, uh, instead of using prospect lead, uh, you know, a conversion or, or new patient, totally changes that conversation. And it's a unique differentiator because no one's really doing it. Right? And so we talk with our clients about where you are in your head and where the consumer is in their head is so far apart that you ask them to take this huge leap. First of all, no one really loves going to the dentist, <laughs> not even me. And and no one really looks forward to going to see a cosmetic surgeon except for the, the desired outcome. And that kind of large space between where we are and where someone is coming into our world for the first time we advocate taking small baby steps and building trust, something that you're teaching and your marketing uh, really is all about. Talk about why, and, and you know, in your book, Tribes, you say the most powerful form of marketing is leadership, right? And, and leaders build, you know, they don't just build followers. They really build consensus and trust. And they, they move the agenda forward for the benefit of everyone, for all stakeholders. And talk about why, why, you, why you think first that, 
the most powerful form of marketing is really leadership. And then kind of dovetail that with how everything you do and teach is really about trust and why there's so much of it lacking in today's marketing. When we think about leadership, we sometimes get hung up on the TV version of leadership, uh, of Gandhi or the Reverend King changing everything. But most leadership is not macro, it's micro. It's the smallest possible group, not the largest possible group, and that's fine. What it means to lead is to make positive change happen, voluntarily engaging with people to move them from here to there. If you think about it, what is marketing? Marketing is making change happen, to turn non-patients into patients, to turn people with bad teeth into good teeth, to turn people who are fed uh, a little bit into people who are well-fed. That is the work of marketing, to make change happen. And the way we can do it is not by saying, how do I get everyone to work with me? You know, I, I don't know the numbers. I'm sure you do. It would seem to me, if I had a guess, that 1,000 people who are regular customers is probably enough to make a living in uh, your industry. Maybe it's a couple thousand, but it's not many more than that, right? Correct. So 2,000 people is one out of every 150,000 people in the country. One out of 150,000. Such a small number that if you drew it on a piece of paper, you wouldn't even see the dot. That means you're <laughs> full. That's all you need, that many. So the goal is not to get everyone. The goal is to say what community of people who are connected by geography, by interest, by need, by communication method, by something, what group of people can I become part of can I contribute to? Can I create a horizontal idea for so they talk to each other in a way that makes engaging with me something that they need to do? So the example from my own youth is Dr. Schuler, um, who did the retainer on the top of my mouth. Every single kid in my school went to Dr. Schuler. How did that happen? Well, it's because he wasn't serving kids in Tonawanda or even East Amherst. He focused on a community of moms. And so when a mom needed to have their kids' teeth looked into, they asked the other moms, what do you do? And because Dr. Schuler's name came up over and over and over again, he got another patient. And that idea seems super simple and prosaic, but it's totally avoided by people who are instead going for the low-hanging fruit. Because the low-hanging fruit is run an ad in the penny saver, offer a discount, come up with a come on, and take all comers. And that works in the short run, but it stays expensive. Yeah, why do you think so many businesses do that? You know, they 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 think everyone's their best customer or anyone, you know, they, they do focus on lowest hanging fruit. Why, why do you think well, that is? Well, you know, I struggled for more than seven years as an entrepreneur. I was really close to bankruptcy many times. And at one point I found myself in a nursing home running a spreadsheet. So a nursing home operator could decide if they wanted to buy this nursing home or not. I'm surrounded by disinfectants. I'm sitting next to people who have um, memory problems. Uh, and I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, why am I here? Is this my arc? Is this what I want to do? And I knew the reason I was there is that I needed the $5,000 I was getting for this job. But I never did anything like it again. Because I said, better 
to make nothing and eat macaroni and cheese than to distract myself with the short-term emergency. And becoming a meaningful specific instead of a wandering generality, as Zig Ziglar would say, is the hallmark of every successful small business person I know. That's exactly right. We, we see clients who, I uh, say, you know, if I could wave a magic wand and solve one problem for you, what would that be? And it's almost always, I need more new patients, more new patients, more new patients. And no one's really taking the time to define what that is, right? So they, they just think more new patients will solve all of their problems. Uh, two years ago, when we started focusing only on kids, so we, and on my own practices, we do pediatric dentistry and adolescents. We stopped treating adults. Because we were really, really good at, to your example, working with busy moms. And we weren't really good at working with adults or working with other types of cases. That was our sitting in the nursing home realizing, what are we doing here? Well, we're here we're here to get a check and not necessarily to build a long-term sustainable asset. You know, um, share some examples. I mean, you've, you really, you know, have more direct marketing experience uh, with firms of all sizes than anyone on the planet Talk about that struggle when you bring on either a new student or you bring on a new client and you look at how do we make this leap into being different or, or being specific as opposed to a joke in our industry is not every person with teeth and a credit card is a good potential new patient for you. You know, how do you, how do you walk someone into that realization? That's a great line. Um, to be completely fair. I have no clients. I've never had clients. I don't do any consulting. So most of my experience is from watching people get stuck, as well as from giving friends and people I care about uh, help. And I spend a lot of time with charities where I volunteer to help them think this through. And one example I'll give you, uh, a charity that uh, I've worked with for many years, most of their donations were between $50,000 and $200,000 at a time because rich people need to give money to charity too. And when a rich person gives money to charity, they're not going to write a $100 check. This was the top of the market. And they got a chance to go on Oprah. And that was back when Oprah was a big deal. And everyone said, you got to do it. It's going to change everything. And I insisted that they not. And I prevailed. And the reason was that if you go on Oprah, the phone rings and $20 donations pour in. And that's great. But then you get hooked on $20 donations. And then you start doing the things that get you $20 donations. And then you start staffing for $20 donations. And then the next thing you know, you're not a $100,000 charity, you're a $20 charity, which is fine as long as you can get 5,000 times as many donors, right? And the choice that we make when we show up in the world is people are saying, well, what kind of institution is this? What kind of folks are these people? And so if I go to Mount Sinai Hospital, I expect that I'm going to get world-class surgery, but I don't think they should have a pedicure station because pedicures don't belong in Mount Sinai Hospital. That's a different gig, even though people are paying money and something's happening to their body. It's not the same thing. So you pick the people you seek to serve. You double down on that. You say, this is it. I've burned my boats. I am on this island. And once you realize that's the one you've committed to, you will end up serving those people, over serving them in a way 
that gets them to tell their community. Yeah, I mean, I think we see a lot of businesses just get distracted. And it was, so we were, as entrepreneurs, often shiny object people. And it would be tempting for a lot of people to say, well, the people are here and they need their nails done. <laughs> Let's add the pedicure station. It might be economically feasible to do it, but if it doesn't fit, as you pointed out, uh, into the long-term vision of the organization, uh, there needs to be discipline in place. Um, talk about where you see the smartest companies going. I know you're, you're a great observer of not just marketing, but also human behavior. It's, it's apparent from your podcast and your, and your writings uh, that you really have a gift there. Talk about why so many people are distracted and maybe a few ideas to overcome that. The thing that I'm really focusing on, uh, I talk about a lot in the book, but I I think that it's happening everywhere from uh, school to politics to general commerce. It's, It's this, that once a community has what it needs, which means a roof, brown rice, and a modest amount of healthcare, everything after that is wants. What do people want? And what many people want is to avoid fear. They want to avoid fear and they want to avoid pain. And that's the main reason that the dental health industry has so much trouble because the dental health industry brings fear and pain to most of its patients. Not on purpose, but that's one of the side effects, two of the side effects. So what is the opposite of that? What causes people to take action around things that are more expensive than they want them to be or a little bit uncomfortable? And the answer is the concept of status roles. And status roles are almost never talked about, but they're seen everywhere. And so I'm going out on a limb and talking about them in detail. So let me try to explain the concept first, and then I'll explain how it works in in the setting that you guys are working in. You may remember the opening scene of The Godfather. And in the opening scene of The Godfather, Bonacera, the undertaker, comes to the Don to ask him for a favor on his daughter's wedding day. In that moment, Bonacera is raising his status by taking advantage of the Don's moment of weakness and insisting that the Don lower his status. Well, status roles define who we are as humans, and we don't want them to change. We People who like moving up want to keep moving up. So if you look at the Hamptons or at Hollywood, the reason luxury cars cost $200,000 now is because some people wanted a car that cost more than their friend who had a $150,000 car. And we see the same thing with what size office people have or how, or how expensive their suit is or where they go on vacation. These are obvious status role issues. So the question is, when we look at certain countries that have money but don't have great teeth, why are they different than our country, which has money, where people do have great teeth? And the answer is because in our culture, great teeth are a status symbol. And to walk into a meeting and smile with brown crooked teeth will cost you too much status. You can't abide it. Or if you're a mom in Scarsdale and your kid has crooked teeth, yes, you want your kid to have straight teeth for the rest of her life. But also, let's not forget, your status as a mom is impacted by the fact that your kid has braces. Your status as a mom is impacted when you mention which dentist you went to. And so status 
lives in a hundred different ways in our culture. It lives when one teenager talks to another. It lives with what kind of senior citizen home you're in all throughout our lives. It's not just about money. It's about scarcity. It's about affiliation. It's about who respects you. And what many people in dental health have accidentally done is taken advantage in a good way of our need for status. But somewhere along the way, they get frustrated because they forget that almost all our decisions, particularly if there's insurance, are gated not by, can I afford this, but is it important to me? And what makes it important to me is probably a mixture of comfort and status. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. And now, back to the program. That is brilliant, and I, and I hope everyone goes back and listens to that segment again, because it's, particularly in our industry, there's so many individuals who assume consumers behave rationally, that they will do something out of duty or obligation because they should do it for their kid <laughs> or they should do it for themselves. But consumers, as you wisely pointed out, do a lot of things for status, they do it for bragging rights, they do it for emotional reasons, not always logical reasons. Now, there are segments of the population that do have to buy based on price or based on location or or perhaps where their insurance tells them they have to go. But that really is, particularly in elective healthcare, is the minority of the population. So you just unpacked what could be an entire semester in advanced marketing. And, uh, and, and thank you for sharing that. Talk a little bit, you know, one of your recent podcasts, you opened my eyes to this really cool concept called wabi-sabi, which is the Japanese art of finding beauty and imperfection. Sure. So I'm shifting gears a little bit here. Um, Cause I, I love how you think. And I love, you know, you're, most people think about, you know, a foot wide and an inch deep <laughs> and you go miles wide and miles deep. Um, you know, so this concept of finding beauty, beauty and imperfection balanced with what a lot of our clients have been exposed to through us, uh, which I stumbled across with Bob Iger at Disney. Uh, we work a lot with the Disney Institute and, and uh, Bob, the CEO of Disney, gives every upper level executive a copy of uh, the movie focusing on Hiro Ono is a 90-year-old sushi chef who uh, got a Michelin three-star uh, immediately upon, you know, they said they didn't even go through the one, two, three-star process. They just said that we've seen nothing like this, um, where Hiro Ono talks about the concept of Kaizen, which is continuous improvement. So there's this counterbalance of always trying to get better 
and particularly as dentists and surgeons and people listening to this interview have a tendency to be perfectionistic and, and always trying to get better, balanced with this, what you opened my eyes to, wabi-sabi, which is finding some beauty and imperfection. And how do you balance that both in your own life and in your professional life? So if you go to, if you want to eat dinner with Jiro, uh, he will not accept a reservation from somebody outside the country, nor will they accept one from someone who doesn't speak Japanese. So you need your hotel concierge to book the table. You probably can't because it's all sold out. When you arrive, you get 22 minutes to eat dinner. It's exactly the same as it is for the person next to you, as it was yesterday, as it was six months ago. Uh, it costs over $275. And 25 minutes later, you're back on the street. The wabi-sabi has been completely eliminated from the experience of eating with Jiro. If you eat at Jiro's son's place, uh, it's exactly the same restaurant except a mirror image because his son is left-handed. And uh, the experience is exactly the same except his son's not famous. On the other hand, if you go down the street, you can, for the same price, eat uh, sushi at a sushi bar that only has six seats. And it takes two and a half hours. And you will have an engagement with the chef and his wife, the only two people who work in the restaurant. And years later, you will remember many, many things about the experience because wabi-sabi was present. It was alive. It was real. It was imperfect. There were courses that weren't as polished as other courses because it was the first time. And there are moments when you want a Jiro-like experience. For example, if someone's going to uh, do it, uh, I don't know, uh, put a pacemaker in me, I would like to not be the first person they ever put a face pacemaker into. And I would like to know that it's <laughs> at the Six Sigma level of quality. But when you think about the natural limits of growth of Disneyland or Disney World, or you think about the lack of joy that Jiro now has in his life because he's ostensibly crossed a line and he's cashing out for him and his family and he has every right to do so, that's because the humanity has been sucked out of it because the experience has been so rehearsed that the woman in the Snow White costume has to act just like she did yesterday because she's playing a role. But the reason we go to a Broadway show instead of a movie, because at a Broadway show, something magical could happen and our status would be increased if we were present for that sort of magic. So when I think about voluntary healthcare, there are moments in it when I desperately want there to be wabi-sabi, where I want to be seen as a human, where I want to engage with someone who sees my fear, shares their fear, where status roles are exchanged, where something happened that was magical. And then there are other moments that I want there to be Six Sigma quality. And I don't think we should get confused about the two. So, you know, when I do akimbo, I record it right here where I'm sitting. And if Louie, the dog in the next apartment, barks and you listen really carefully, you can hear him. And that's on purpose because I want people who are listening to know that I sat down in my office and I recorded it. And there weren't a team of people processing it and cleaning it up and making it pristine. It's me and a microphone. Whereas, when we're watching, you know, a hundred million dollar movie blockbuster, we don't want there to be one frame that's out of whack because we didn't go to see the work of a human. We went to see the perfection of a committee. 
Talk about why people get confused there. You know, the people listening to this program, you know, the average orthodontic practice in the U.S. generates, you know, between one and two million dollars in revenue per year. Our clients are starting at three to five and they go above 20 million per year because they have this sense of scaling, they have, which is very hard to do in healthcare. They have this sense of um, putting systems in place. And I think, you know, if you go back and unpack what you just said, I think too many companies get focused on this has to be like Disney and they forget all the things that emotionally build relationships with the people who are going to refer to you and are going to come back to you. Talk about why businesses get confused about the balance between Wabi Sabi and this art. Well, the confusion comes from wanting to be off the hook. You know, if you, if you buy a Ford Explorer, not one human being is responsible for that car because the system made the car. Whereas if you engage with somebody who pauses in the middle and says, oh, I've never seen anything quite like this. Let me bring my partner in and we'll talk about it. A human being showed up and acted like a human being, but that means the human being is responsible. So there are medical transactions that I have that work exactly the way I want, which is everyone has no face. I never wait. It's reasonably priced. I'm in and I'm out, and it's completely uh, pristine in the sense that no emotion was expended. And then there are other times when I'm dealing with the medical industrial complex where I desperately want it to not be like that, where I want the doctor with the messy desk to sit with me and spend five extra minutes talking to me like a person and telling me about when his daughter had the same thing and sharing his insights and his fears about my fears and my status. Because there's two parts of me. And part of me, it feels like a car that needs a lube job. And part of me is a human being that's afraid and wants to be seen. And you don't go to Disney because you want to be seen. You go to Disney because you want your kids to have a predictable experience that you can then move on from. It's so smart. Yeah. When I get my flu shot, <laughs> it's very much, I don't need to know anything about you. You don't need to know anything about me. Just get the flu shot so I can go back to the hospital and work with, with our cleft pilot team. Um, but on the other hand, if you're about to have uh, a serious procedure or you've been given a serious diagnosis or, or a loved one of yours is about to go into a serious long-term engagement with healthcare, that's a totally different scenario. You know, I'm curious your thoughts. I listened to an interview was on Wharton Business School, and I've forgotten the name of the CEO. It's a new upstart, but they have 10,000 physicians, 30,000 home care aides all across the country. And if they were publicly traded, I would have gone and shorted the stock because <laughs> they had such a great question. And it was, you know, what have you learned that you didn't think you would know right now? And trying to scale healthcare. And he gave a huge tell. He said, you know, listen, it, even though the systems are the same in Milwaukee and Dallas and in Hoboken, it really rides on the back of a few exceptional people who I think are probably doing this balance of being humanistic and being systematic. What do you see with healthcare moving forward as, as everyone consolidates? We've got Humana. Uh, you know, potentially being acquired by Walmart. We've got uh, CVS being acquired by Aetna. Um, Amazon and, and JP Morgan and Buffett say they want to get in the game. I mean, it's 20% of the GDP. 
in the U.S. Where do you see healthcare finding that balance? I mean, what what's your gut say about where this in goes? Lynchpin, uh, I wrote about a book called The E-Myth Revisited, which is not a bad book, but the thesis of the book is make every single task in your company capable of being done by the least talented person you could ever hire. Because if you do that, you're not depending on the insight or the magic of a human being. It scales. And that's what big Fortune 100 companies are good at. That the number of people it takes to run a Walmart is very small. And the number of people who are linchpins in a Walmart is very small because it's a system. And as someone who's paying for a lot of the healthcare in this country, I want the system to be super efficient. But if you're a small business person, you have to make a choice. And your choice is either that you're going to build a system that is reliable and efficient and cheaper than Warren Buffett and people like Walmart can make, or you're going to be the one that people go to when they want to get out of the system. You're going to be the linchpin, the one and only, the person we would miss if they were gone. And those are the two choices, go high or go low. And the problem with the race to the bottom is you might win or worse, come in second. And I'm a huge fan of the race to the top instead. <laughs> and, you know, just speaking as somebody who's gone to the same dentist for, you know, 15 years, when his partner is taken over for his appointments, I don't go that day. Because if I wanted a stranger to work with me, I find someone cheaper and faster than this guy. Um, so those are my two choices is uh, anonymous uh, dental health that's done fast and cheap or human dental health that's neither fast nor cheap. But if you're in the middle, you've got big troubles. You, it resonates so well with what we teach and, uh, and, and all your books, you know, you've influenced what we teach a lot. So your, your methods and systems are being passed, you know, through us to dentists and we see a lot of it right now. So there's, there's a lot of private equity in dentistry. There's a lot of private equity in, in cosmetic surgery and in particularly orthodontics. I mean, there's a billion dollar publicly traded company who's really with a brilliant CEO and in, in full transparency, I'm, I'm a large shareholder in that company. There's, this, again, not to beat a dead horse, there's this distraction in our healthcare industry um, where we as providers and we as certainly as small business owners, I think, fail to understand what you just mentioned. And that is, you know, everything gets better when the relationship is stronger. And when you have patients who will uh, wait for you to come back from vacation uh, so that they don't have to see your associate or they'll wait to bring their kids when they know that you're in the office. You know, you build a really strong relationship and lifetime customer value goes up, referrals go up. And really, you know, if you've answered the question we talked about earlier, you know, who are you really for? Why are you here? Um, that cements home in my mind why all this is relevant. And, you know, I think it's, again, I want to thank you for what, what you've shared, not just with business owners and marketers, but really the world at large and your concepts, you know, it, this is how business should be. It, it shouldn't really be a race to the bottom. You know, we always say, you know, the race to the bottom usually ends in bankruptcy court. If, if your only sole differentiator is that you're quick and cheap, someone can come along and be quicker and cheaper. And, you know, everyone thinks Walmart, will always be around. 
They yeah. forgot that we thought Kmart would always be around and that we thought AP, AP Grocer would always be around and we thought that Sears would always be around. And right now we think that Amazon will always be around. Um, now that one's harder to argue. <laughs> they, they are pretty impressive. But, you know, the race at the bottom is a um, is a scary race. So I want to thank you for for teaching and promoting the concepts to race to the top. Um, talk about why you think so many companies won't race to the top. Why is it so why is it so tempting well, to race to the bottom? The race to the bottom isn't popular because it's fun. It's popular because uh, economic pressure and status roles push us to do so. That the person who uh, wants you to take more care and charge more money isn't showing up asking you to do that. But the person who wants you to go faster and cheaper is all the time. And so that's who's calling. And that's who's in our face because that person is willing to push and negotiate to get a deal and walks out when you raise the price. But if you do the math, you realize that having patients who pay 15% more because they want something special more than pay for themselves. And the challenge that we have is to find the guts and the belief in ourselves, the empathy to imagine that someone actually wants us to give them more. Not more according to us, but more according to them. And that's difficult. It's difficult to find that empathy because either we believe our own hype, believe that we're better than we are, which is super common, or we believe our own you know, downgrade and that we're not as good as we could be. And that believing yourself enough to say, there are a lot of dentists in this town, but I'm the only one who can do blank. That takes guts to believe that. And you have to act as if, because until you act as if, it can't possibly be true. And and it circles all the way back to your one of your first points. It, in putting a system like that in, in front of a market, right? This should compel everyone listening to switch and remove the word prospect lead or new patient and and replace it with student right because that's where this all starts and so it's a great it's a great uh, it's a great summary really i think of what what we've shared today and i appreciate you being here so much um i could talk to you for days and days and days i know you are extremely busy and i i'm honored that you were here um i want to give you a minute to talk a little bit about uh, the new book talk a little bit about how people can find what you're teaching what you're writing and, and well, thanks. Anything I, you you know, I promised I wouldn't up. write a new book. And I built this thing called the Marketing Seminar, which is an intensive 100-day online thing. We've had a lot of people in dental health go through it, actually. Uh, but some people said, you know, I just want to watch the videos. So we made a video course out of it. But then I realized some people just want to read the book. So I wrote a book. Uh, it's called This is Marketing. And it's got a lot of confidence in that title. And what I'm arguing inside the book is that there's only a few kinds of marketing, and this is one of them, and it's the marketing we want to do. It's the marketing of addressing the smallest possible market and spreading the word. And um, it's been fun to write, and I think it will get under people's skin. If you want to hear more about what I do, just type Seth into Google, and my blog has 7,500 blog posts, all free. I've written a bunch of eBooks. There's videos. Um, so SethGodin.com, if you forget to type Seth into your favorite search engine. 
<laughs> Seth, it's been an honor. Thanks for being here. Keep doing what you're doing and pushing everyone forward uh, in the right direction. It's, it's truly um, a pleasure and an honor. And uh, to everyone listening, I hope you I hope you dig into the resources. Hope you read the book. And uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Seth, particularly. Well done. Thanks for this work. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box. where we bring you and your team leaders into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed today's program, please share us with a friend or colleague. Visit theburlesonbox.com where you can sign up to receive my monthly reading list and action guides for each of the books and authors we interview. As a member of the program, we invite you to send the Burleson Box to your referring doctors and centers of influence. Call us at 1-800-891-7520 to discuss how the Burleson Box has worked for many successful organizations throughout the world. And be sure to listen each month for chances to win fun prizes and practice building resources for you and your team. Until next time, remember the words of Mark Twain who said, A man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. Go, make it a great month, and I'll see you right here next time in the Burleson Box. trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com.